0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Keep Key the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today, and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited-time 10% discount. Hello, everybody. So before I start today's episode, I just want to do a life update. Um, So I've joined the MIT Media Labs Digital Currency Initiative as their head of community and long-term societal impact. Uh, which I'm pretty excited about. A really nice group of aligned people there. Um, So that means that I'm going to shut down my Patreon. Uh, I've shut down my Patreon and that this podcast will likely continue, but possibly in a different form with the Media Lab or with the DCI or whatever. So we'll see. Um, And I just, as another quick note there, my, this podcast was recorded before I joined the DCI. So clearly these are my views and do not reflect those of the the digital currency initiative, the DCI. So um, with that, let's get today's episode and it's i interviewed daniel schmachtenberger today um and daniel's done a lot of thinking about these you know kind of complicated complex macro systems that we live in and as just a quick i mean i don't know if it's a warning it's also kind of an excitement um daniel and i really like operating at these levels of abstraction so (laughs) that's where we go when we abstract um today about one big topic which is meta x risk um and so this is not only thinking about kind of traditional and by X risks I mean existential risks. So this is not traditionally thinking about like existential risks, like climate change, nuclear security, biosecurity, or AI alignment. Instead, it's asking the question, what actually creates those X risks? What creates those existential risks? And you can think of this as something like as two kinds of processes where we've had evolution as a process and evolution was a generally a nice process that, um, thank you evolution for creating me. Um, evolution had micro rivalry, but created macro anti fragility. right? So the, like the earth as a entity, um, was a generally a blossoming anti-fragile symbiotic nature thing um, but um, we've humans have created this new process as a result of abstraction and design and technology and science and this kind of process it creates it has micro rivalry in the sense of like market competition but it doesn't have macro anti-fragility Right, we don't have. If you look at the world today, or something like the Industrial Revolution, Industrial Revolution was created by a process, and that process doesn't have a built built into that process um, is not something that says, "Hey, let's internalize our externalities," or you know, let's close these loops. And instead, we get something like climate change. Um, and so. This process, tech as a process, um, gives us these multipolar traps um, with this exponential tech that will produce these exponentially harmful externalities eventually. Um, And so that's the world that we live in and we need to switch away. We essentially need to create a new kind of process, um, design a new kind of process that kind of takes the best of both worlds here, um, where we have where we create macro antifragility, but it's not created as an emergent process of evolution and the micro rivalry, um, but instead is actually kind of by design by by us as humans. So um, that's primarily what we talk about today. Um, And just as a quick note, um, you know, we put a lot of context before this. So um, it's definitely juicy in the first 30 minutes, but it gets especially juicy in the last 30 minutes um, where we go deep on this. So uh, with that, hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world. We have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're focusing on Series A, Macro Systems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? <coughs> and to dive into that question i'm very happy to introduce daniel schmachtenberger to this show daniel loves exploring various topics of civilizational significance trying to shape them for good and he's one of the best systems vocal processors i know and much of my own thinking has been shaped by him so daniel thanks for being on the show and welcome
0: happy to be here my friend
1: me too okay so we're really going to push the question where are we as humanity headed today um and let's kind of start at the top here and before talking kind of too deeply about our current context or what's happening daniel how do you think about kind of goals like what do you think about goals for our civilization or when you're trying to like you know optimize for a metric or or something like that what are what are your big goals Mm -hmm.
0: so before talking about uh what i think good goals would be i think the question you're actually asking about is is a goal-oriented framework actually a adequate or good framework or are there other frameworks we want to take and so obviously western culture has been and particularly post-industrial post-scientific technological uh and even computational culture has been very oriented to goals kind of process Mm -hmm. and we can attribute both lots of successes and most of the failures of the world uh, or many of the failures of the world to that process because if i define a goal and it doesn't include everything that will be affected by the nature of what i do to get there then whatever is affected that i didn't define as part of my goal is the space where externalities can happen and even in the you know very well-intentioned nonprofit, uh you know whatever kinds of sectors we see all the time having things like okay so we have a goal to end extreme poverty and childhood hunger globally or within a particular area that seems like a pretty awesome goal especially if you've ever seen a child who's hungry or a mother watching her child be hungry yeah. the tricky thing is If my only goal is to end hunger, I can do it through unrenewable agricultural methods that dump nitrogen into river deltas, moving dead zones in the ocean even faster, Um, moving us towards actually extinction as a species and collapse of the biosphere writ large, which is, okay, so we prevented some people from dying over the very short term and made it more likely that everyone dies over the medium term. Yeah. So at minimum, when we think about goals, we could at least just start by this hand-wavy kind of thing of saying our goal is X, whatever X is, right? Stop uh, extreme poverty and just add this little caveat, which is our goal is to do that and not externalize harm to anything else that matters. And now when you start exploring, how do I know what else might be affected that could have harm externalized that isn't obvious in very complex systems and with um, technology that has lots of different causal dynamics that are associated, and then the question of what are other things that matter and what is my ethical and existential framework for assessing that, then you start to realize that. Uh, that kind of hand wave leads way to a much deeper process of what we might call omni-consideration.
1: Yeah, so every- let me pause you for a second, actually, there because I think that there's a lot of good juicy stuff. Um, a, as you said, we're kind of so used to thinking of this goal framework, um, and it's almost it's hard to get out of it in some ways. And like you say, I super agree with you. Say, once we create a goal, whatever that goal is, X, and you also have to say, what are all the externalities of X, and how can we make sure that we're you know minimizing the negative externalities and upping the positive externalities of that X? Um, is there, I guess, to go a little bit deeper on that, this kind of goals perspective uh, and you kind of started to allude to this to some extent it's like there are there are people in the world. So I, I would say I'm like a relative kind of effective altruist maximalist um, in terms of, I, I agree with, you know, generally agree with like consequentialism and kind of outcome focused, ends focused mindsets. And those are all kind of goal. They have kind of goals as a part of them. So how do you think about something like effective altruism as kind of a mostly a goal focused or kind of an outcome focused mindset? Is that going to be, is that good for shaping the world positively? <laughs>
0: Um, effective altruism is a valuable step in the consideration process of saying, if we really care about having actions that have a positive impact on life writ large, how do we go about, uh, influencing our choice making basis of what will be effective and how can we use very effective tools like rationality? To inform better choice. So, insofar as it's asking what are the right epistemic frameworks to inform good choice, that's a great step. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm going to say that it is a limited step and the limits are actually um, fatal. Uh, And and so, (laughs) more steps in the direction of informing good choice have to happen. So, here's a couple examples. When we talk about the limits of goals, because the goal is always embedded within a larger context. And so you have to factor it in the embedding functions. And that's where the topic of externality comes. And how we even think through externality, we're mostly only going to forecast within domains that we already know a lot. So as we're getting into exponential technology, where there are faster rates of change, more complicated, more complex systems. etc., then there's more stuff that's going to happen that we don't forecast well, Um, and faster coupling from the micro context to the macro context. It used to be that whatever happened in a micro way, it wasn't going to affect the biosphere or human civilization writ large because stone tools just don't have as big a consequence as AI or nanotech or biotech do. And so because of the larger scale and faster timeline coupling coefficients of micro action to macro dynamics, externality is that much bigger of a topic, right? And it's an exponentially bigger topic. So let's just take small cases and then look at what happens when you put that on an exponential curve. So say we take medicine, because in medicine, we're talking about what is health, and but in a body, that's a complex system. But we take a complicated approach of trying to define health in terms of a finite number of metrics. So we're going to look at your Uh, low-density lipoprotein and your high-density lipoprotein and a couple different cholesterol metrics and blood pressure and blood sugar and whatever, right? And as time goes on, we look at more and more metrics. But then the idea is that there's a range in which we want to see those metrics. And so then the goal is, at, at first, we can just say, okay, your cholesterol is too high. Our goal is to lower cholesterol. That seems like a reasonable thing if I have a reason to think that high cholesterol increases the probability for certain diseases, but now I have to dig a little bit deeper. And this first step is obvious. The second step is more important. The first step says, okay, when I say cholesterol is high, so I want to lower it, giving a statin drug actually works and makes sense. I'm gonna lower low-density lipoprotein. I did not ask why the cholesterol was high in the first place. Is that possibly a protective mechanism to the arterial system from some type of oxidative damage or toxicological damage or whatever that's arising from? Is it a sign of other systems, homeodynamic systems, being out of balance? We're just addressing that symptom; means underlying other pathoetiology will continue. Is there a side effect on metrics other than LDL, and maybe ones that we haven't even measured and done longer-term analysis on of the method that we're using, et cetera? So then we can say, well, the statin works for that, but not now. The system is more dependent on it; its own ability to regulate cholesterol is less good. Why it was off, we still don't know. And the side effects of the statin might be things like liver toxicity and brain toxicity. So we say, okay, well, that's not the best method, but that is still our method, right? That's how we do medicine. And it's why, if you think about medicine, we have really amazing acute medicine and really terrible chronic medicine. So, in acute medicine, meaning if we know the acute onset of the illness, like you just got shot. And the problem is a bullet that went in. We can take the bullet out, sew it up, and there isn't deeper, underlying, more complex causation. That's pretty straightforward, and we're really good at that. You just got an acute infection. You just got an acute poisoning. We can deal with those things pretty well. But when we talk about psychiatric disease or autoimmune disease or neurodegenerative disease or cancer or anything that doesn't have one obvious immediate cause— You'll notice that for the most part, we don't have anything that actually looks like a real cure or prevention. We have symptomatic treatment and we might have things at slow rates of progression. And the reason we don't, and so cancer is a classic example. We can cut a cancer out, we can radiate it out, we can poison it out, but we're not that good at saying why is it growing in a way that it wasn't when the person was younger and that it doesn't in other people, and how do we actually address that? Because it doesn't have one cause, it has a whole bunch of different causes, and they're not even the same set of causes in different people. So now we have to actually not do a generalized bell curve approach, but do a, let's understand this complex system uniquely, factoring multifactorial causation, delayed causation, causal cascades, shit that we are epistemically not that good at. We do the same thing for the world. When we're saying we want to feed kids in this area and we're not saying what is wrong with a macro economy that actually creates poverty and what, uh, you know, et cetera. Like what are the actual causes of this problem and then of a particular solution that we're going to come up with that doesn't address the causal dynamics well – Uh, What are the side effects of that solution going to be? Is this agricultural method going to lead to more nitrogen runoff leading to larger dead zones in the ocean that is actually worse for everyone long term and writ large? And so what we find is then we look at the LDL and say, okay, so we want to look at LDL and these liver enzymes and a few other things. And then we try and put more metrics and run optimization on those metrics, which then (laughs) we say big data and – and machine learning will help us do. But this is the kind of the key thing. No matter how many metrics, th- th- there's a couple things here. When we say that goals are limited, we also are saying that optimization theory is limited um, for a couple critical reasons. So now I go from two metrics to 200 or 2,000 metrics. But there's still other things that are happening that are outside of the metrics that I'm seeking to optimize that are mostly in either the beyond factorable within this model or the actual unknown unknowns, but that might be critical to the whole system. And so when I'm running optimization on these N metrics, I'm also affecting a lot of other stuff that I'm not paying attention to optimize, which is the places where I'll probably externalize harm as I'm driving a system where all those things are interconnected without actually acknowledging they're interconnected. In other words, Our model of a complex system is not how the complex system actually works. So when we treat the actual reality as the model and we try and optimize for the model, the place in which the reality is not the model gets fucked up. And so when you define a complex system as something that has an emergent property beyond how you model it, when you model it, you get certain system dynamics. Awesome. Complicated system. Complex system is the predicted dynamics of the model don't explain all of the dynamics then you have to say is there a different epistemology other than n-dimensional metrics and optimization theory to account for what is
1: actually going on so pause for a second so I agree with a lot of that and I want to talk about in a sec but so, you talked about the. I agree that the, there's a bad forecasting piece where we live in this world where we have black swan style events and we're hyper interconnected, lots of power dynamic, lots of power, lots of external, or lots of, um, sorry, exponentials happening. And when all that happens, if we set our goals and then don't, uh, account for the externalities or actions then um, the sad externalities can turn out to be really big because everything's so interconnected and powerful now um, and i agree with what you're saying when, when you think about any of these actions and this gets into how kind of to think about this stuff it's like when you think about taking an action before you do it think a why is there this problem in the first place to try to go to that root cause level and then b what are the externalities of that action So, and in this final piece, what you're getting to here is this map is not the territory thing here, and it's especially true for complex systems. Um, And so, I just kind of want to recap all of that stuff for our listener, and then have you go and say, okay, so if we can't use this, if I can't just keep adding metrics to my space, um, is there a what is the new epistemology that I should be thinking about that will actually allow me to and allow us to to succeed in this new world?
0: Right. So, I want to share another framework that will help the consideration here. And this is um, not a happy thought at first, but it's a necessary thought, which leads us to be more effective in considering how to have happy thoughts uh, around this. So it is that it is a lot easier to break shit than it is to actually protect or build stuff. Um, And there is an entropic preference that we have to consider. And just to have a very simple kind of prima facie of that, the house that I'm in probably took (coughs) a year to build and a record ball could take it down in minutes. Mm -hmm. And if you think about an old growth forest and the thousands of years it takes to get the biodiversity and complexity of that forest and how long it takes with a fire or a D9 to take it down, you really get a sense of the orders of magnitude of the timelines for construction versus destruction of complicated or complex systems. And everything from from things like that, how long does it take to build a globalized infrastructure and how quickly could we actually break it, um, all the way to how long does it take to build trust and how easy is it to break it. Mm-hmm. And so when you factor that, you realize that there's a couple orders of magnitude more ways to break stuff and to build it and faster time processes on that so when I'm factoring externalities and I'm thinking about some new technological capacity and I don't under, I can't actually forecast the possible externalities well because I don't even know that space. I'm opening up a new epistemic space with new types of causal dynamics and feedback loops and couplings that are very hard to think about. And there is an orientation that there will be more total ways of having destructive effects than constructive and that they will be faster this is something we have to consider very deeply. And when you can imagine, like when we first got stone tools down, we killed a lot of things (laughs) faster than we ever had before. And we started the beginning process of species extinction, um, human-induced species extinction. When we first started kind of figuring out fire, we burned a lot of shit down before we got good at containing fire. Um, But when you move up to AI, AI, And nanotech and biotech and things that are pattern replicating tech, meaning that the failure of the thing is not just that it caused a problem, but that it causes a cascading problem that once initiated might not be stoppable. You really have to change the epistemic framework of good things are mostly good, progress at all costs, history is written by the winners, we kind of ignore the ugly parts and let's keep pushing and focusing on the good side of technology for some very limited definition of good, because Mm -hmm. the destructive applications at that scale are large enough to actually destroy the entire playing field where the positive applications just don't actually get to matter anymore. So there's an increasing kind of, at exponential scale, exponential constructive and destructive forces, both the destructive forces become larger than the playing field can handle in the game. And so with exponential tech, you either figure out how to prevent and internalize externalities or the game eventually self self-terminates. Yep. And so the type of process that we've used for all of history until now is itself self-terminating.
1: Yep. So could I pause you for a second there? Because I think that's a, a lot of juicy stuff there. I'm reminded of uh, Talib's and, and Yanir Baryam's precautionary principle here, which is the idea that even if something has, you think it's going to be really good with a 99% chance of being really good, but it has a very, very small percentage chance of like um, actual ruin or like existential risk, then it's like, well, then you shouldn't do it. you know. And when we live in this world where everything is interconnected and where everything is becoming more powerful, then that that lose side that destructive side can become yeah it becomes we have to change kind of our ways given our, our exponential tech so let me follow up on that for a quick second here which is if we're trying to change our ways here and we're trying to be kind of taking all the externalities into account um how yeah how can we begin to, to start to do that
0: mm-hmm. so great question Again, I'll say one other thing that I think leads some of the context. Great. One of the important things to consider when we think about the topic of negative externalities. So one thing we just said is the kind of entropic gradient, right? So we have to factor that. Another key thing is the topic of weaponization. Uh, If I create a new technology and it is the capacity to affect change through the causal lever on choice, right? I'm going to make a choice my technological understanding of some mechanism allowed me to make a technology that's a big lever on my choice, so my choice has a bigger effect than it did before. Well, that same technological capacity can be a lever on lots of kinds of choices, right? And so one of the things we have to understand is that the moment we actually deploy a type of asymmetric technology, then it gets reverse engineered, iterated upon, and utilized for all purposes that are incentivized by all agents. And so I had just had some guys talk with me the other day about an AI project they were working on of how they could use some AI information technology that was novel. They just developed to get out some type of um, what they thought were positive political agendas to solve some current near-term problems. And I'm like, And you don't think that the other sides that have as much incentive and pretty good intel will pay attention to the new technology you have, reverse engineer it, and utilize it for the other purposes instantly. And and they thought about it, and they're like, well, I guess that will happen. And I said, now take all of the sides in this multi-agent dynamic that all have rivalrous incentive to weaponize the technology against each other for their agendas. And all you do is up the ante of the playing field. And so nukes didn't actually make us safer. It seemed like they made us safer, but we actually have increased risk of existential risk from nuclear warfare relative to a world that had just never developed nukes. And so this is the multipolar trap where each agent doing the thing that seems like it provides – and whether the agent is a person or a country or a company or whatever – each agent doing the thing that seems like it's best for what they care about in the near term actually leads to a system disposition that is worse for the system as a whole over the long term. And this is what we call a multipolar trap or a race to the bottom, right? A tragedy of the commons and arms race are all examples of this. And with exponential tech, we have an exponential race to the bottom uh, type scenario. So one thing you can say is in terms of goals or necessary criteria of system design, design constraints, is that we have to solve not just for some multipolar trap, but categorically for the class of multipolar traps. As long as you have a rivalrous incentive to utilize technology in a way that will directly or indirectly cause harm, you have a near-term incentive to do that, and you have exponential tech, and anytime anyone deploys it, everyone will be using it for rivalrous purposes. We, We are actually completely fucked
1: yeah yep yeah. so can i pause you for a second there on that great end uh, so i agree with this and this is and this is something that you call like the generator functions of x risk and these are these these multipolar traps and you can look at it when you think about the existential risks that exist today there are things like uh nuclear security and that's an arms race it's like yo couldn't we have stopped at like i mean maybe like Three nukes or something, but no, we have thousands of nukes. Um, and you think about biotech again; it's like people doing things. are in these win lose game dynamics where if they stop and if they don't, if they don't go quicker, and s- same with like artificial intelligence alignment, it's like ooh maybe google and baidu and the you know chinese governments and whoever are going to be nice around and be and try to be safe but actually they're going to be in this win-lose game dynamic where if they're the first ones to get agi then um they will have lots of rewards and so there's a disincentive to kind of chill and wait for uh the safety things um and something like climate change obviously is a an example of the that's like a perfect example the tragedy of the commons where you have it didn't matter that much at the beginning when we started the industrial revolution that we were pushing stuff into the atmosphere but as you say once it gets exponential then uh and we ignore that externality then we're in one of these multipolar traps or no one's caring about the the earth and then uh everybody gets screwed um so i agree with all that i also agree with you in saying this weaponization piece is a very interesting one it's and it takes this weird mindset that we talked about a little bit before with this weird kind of omni-considerate mindset where you have to kind of this is both powerful from an individual perspective where you try to like uh steel man, the other person, but it's also very powerful from this kind of systems perspective where you say, hey, if I do something and well, maybe it's good for me, but what happens if everybody does that, <laughs> you know, then is it still good? And is the thing that I'm using, the tool, and I just did a podcast on new power, um, th- these kinds of new power, are those tools and those kinds of powerful things, how are they going to be used by quote unquote the other side? You need to think about that in terms of this weaponization piece. Um, so I agree with all of you here. One thing that I might be worried about, just as a heads up, is like this. To some extent, I think that people might get stuck in a trap right now, which is what I would call make maybe like a postmodernist trap, where it's like you. We had been. In the, the the world of modernism, we were excited by the world. We said, "Hey, we're going to be nationalists. We're going to go, go, go!" And then postmodernism came around, and we we rejected those myths, and we said, "No, nothing can be real," and like everything is kind of uh, kind of gradients or whatever. And it feels like a, maybe a similar thing here, where you're like, you say like, oh man, Reese, we need to think about all the externalities all the time, or like have omni consideration all the time, or like how how can we how can we then make choices if we have to be worried about the externalities kind of of everything.
0: Yeah, great question. Um, and as you can guess, <clears throat> what I'm going to advocate as an adequate epistemic and ethical framework is not postmodernism. Nice. <laughs> um, a couple more parts that we need to construct in here is so, one thing regarding weaponization, and just a very simple practical thought for people who are wanting to do good. I was having this conversation with Tom Chi the other day, and you know he's a really uh, brilliant prototyper, inventor, roboticist, technologist, working on good things for the world. And we were talking about this problem of um, weaponization, and f- cognizant of that, his approach, and I think this is a, a approach that Bucky Fuller laid out very clearly, and and others have is. Let's take technology that already exists for weaponized purposes and start to popularize how to use it for actually positive purposes. So we're not increasing the technological power landscape. We're repurposing the shitty power to better power. And so we aren't actually going to be driving a multipolar trap and race to the bottom. We are within the current landscape of not having solved for multipolar traps categorically, yet we're at least driving a race to the top. And I think this is a really key idea. So when he's looking at how do we take drone tech that already exists for military purposes and sucks, we're not going to make fundamentally better weaponizable drone tech, but we're going to use it to plant a bunch of trees to pull a bunch of CO2 out and stabilize topsoil and other things. You have a much lower risk of weaponization in that approach. And so uh, I just want to offer that as one very simple kind of strategy that people can think about now that still doesn't mean that a particular approach won't have externalities and doesn't need thought about of course if i take a desertified area and plant trees for the goal of sequester co2 and so i take whatever genetically engineered plant sequester co2 the fastest and just plant a shit ton of it i might get all kinds of ecological problems as a result of anything from monocropping to invasive species to whatever else right so i still have to think about complexity um but i don't think about weaponization increasing the potential of the power landscape as much so that's one um consideration next i want to go onto something about m- multipolar tr- traps but do you want to say anything on that part first
1: uh no 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 yep go to multipolar traps thank you for checking that
0: <laughs> so um for people who aren't familiar with this topic well yet uh there's an article on Slate Star Codex called Meditations on Moloch that Sounds is one of good. the best articles on that whole site, I think, and a, one of the better introductions to the concept of multipolar traps. Um, I will share, whether we we'll get to it on this podcast or another time, a, a different set of insights about a categorical solution to multipolar traps, but just so that people understand them a little bit and why they are so hard to get out of. If we You mentioned a couple examples, but I want to highlight the system dynamics a little bit more explicitly. Because as you said, this is actually not the source of one X-Risk. This is a generator function for all X-Risks is one way of thinking about it. And so if we don't resolve it categorically, then we just kind of move the time scales a tiny bit. Um, So let's take a tragedy of the commons. It started a long time ago. And we just say, okay, we got a number of tribes that are all seeking to increase their own well-being. They are in an implicit competition with each other for the same scarce resources. At a certain point, that implicit competition of economic resource extraction-wise can become so problematic that they move into an explicit militaristic competition, which we can see how it happened. But let's just even start to take first, okay, I don't wanna cut all the trees down because I actually really like the forest. I have a whole spirituality about our connection with nature and we need the forest to live because that's where the animals live, that we hunt and etc. And I actually don't need that many trees. I just need a few trees. So I'm only gonna cut down those few trees except the population of these other tribes and the total number of tribes has been increasing and they're all cutting down trees. And so I know that if I don't cut down the trees, it still doesn't ensure that there's a forest because the other guy is going to cut down the trees. So there's not going to be a forest anyways, but he's actually my competitor because he's going to use those for weapons, uh, weapon making that if I don't also do so, he will actually end up killing my people or <laughs> he will be able to out- outlive us through a famine because of total amount of economic accumulation or whatever it is. So since I can't actually keep the forest because of those guys, and even if I tried to make a truce with this one tribe, there's this other tribe that we just can't even talk to. And so if anybody does the fucked up thing of cutting down a bunch of trees, then we are in a race to all get them first, to keep the other guy from having them because there is no incentive in leaving them and because then it's best for us to have them. So now we cut down a lot more trees than we need. And so – But they only do that because they're thinking the same thing about us. We're the fucked up other tribe to them, right? And so now we all realize that we have to increase how good our axes and saws are and how many people are cutting down forests to cut it down faster because we're all racing to get that wood or the pigs or the whales or the farmland or the whatever it is, right? And so now we are not just destroying the world upon which we depend. We are in a race to destroy it as fast as possible. And if we don't, we assume it will still get destroyed, and it will be worse for us, and we have no chance of winning, right? So this is a scenario where anyone does the fucked up thing, and it sets a precedent for everyone else to actually be better off near term if they do the fucked up thing, even though it leads to everyone being worse off over the long term. So we have a decoupling of the incentive of each agent from the well-being of the other agents and the commons. And as a result, because of the interdependency of the commons, we have a decoupling of our own short-term advantage with our own long-term well-being. Mm-hmm. If I take the case of tragedy of the commons, we can see how recalcitrant and tricky those are. If we take the case of an arms race, we see the same thing. And the tricky part here is we say, okay, we, we haven't succeeded with nuclear deproliferation all that well. All that we have is more and more countries having – existential level power, so we can't even have something like mutually assured destruction anymore. And so and obviously exponential tech can make that non state level actors and not even traceable types of dynamics. But now let's take a current example. Let's take AI weapons, right? Weaponized drones, etc. There is no general in the world that wants to live in the world where those weapons are ubiquitous. Yep. There's no military contractor, military hawk, whatever, who thinks that's actually a nicer world to live in. Everybody knows that our our chance of all being killed by AI drones goes up if any of us fucking build the things. And so it is a comprehensively worse world for all of us and our kids and our grandkids. And yet, we're all gonna build them as fast as we fucking can because the other guy's gonna build them. And we say, well, okay, no, no, we need to create an agreement. There are efforts being made to do this, but all that has to happen is one guy doesn't. One group doesn't join the agreement, and now we don't want them to get the weaponized drones first, so we got to do it. Or everybody joins the agreement, but we're pretty sure they're going to be defecting on it in secret, right? Because they would have all of the incentive to do so. So they keep the agreement, and then in a black project, they defect on the agreement while continuing to disinform us that they're keeping it. And because we think they're doing that, we're also defecting (laughs) on it We're trying to disinform them, while trying to spy on the way they're disinforming us. And now all of our resources are going to both making the world as bad as we can as fast as we can while disinforming each other and ruining the information ecology maximally, right? We will go extinct because of multipolar traps on our current trajectory. If we do not figure out how to solve them, these have been the dynamics that have led to the collapse of societies for as long as we've had societies. And it's just When the Roman Empire fell, as big as it was, it wasn't the whole world. When the Incan or the Mayan or the Egyptian or the Mesopotamian or the Aztec Empire fell, which they all fucking fell, it wasn't everything. As soon as we have a fully interconnected global supply chain where there's not a a country in the world that could actually build the computer that we're speaking on from scratch, the the mining, refinement, hardware tech, software tech, etc. is happening across the whole world. Then we realize that the civilization, that we only know how to build civilizations a collapse, and that the collapse of a fully globalized civilization and where the environmental damage that's happening is at the level of the whole biosphere, not just a particular ecosystem. We say, oh, the way that we have always been, multipolar traps are old, the way we have always been, that has always caused wars and environmental destruction and et cetera is at a level of magnitude that we don't actually get to make it through. So it's not that the problems are different in kind. They're just different in magnitude and speed, where that ends up being different in kind because you don't actually get to keep going through the boom and bust cycles associated. So we either solve for multipolar traps, which means agency misalignment, or the human experiment completes you.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, I like, I mean, I think, I really like what you said there around, I mean, like is a, is a, is a modern term. I wish it were not the case, but I think that you did a good job of explaining. As you said, we've only ever built civilizations that have collapsed and we live in a world now. And, and I think that you're, you're correct to say, like, we, you know, we both often talk about the you know, distributed exponential interconnectedness. And I think part of the interconnectedness, I often talk about like the 4 billion network smartphones, but I think the global supply chain thing is, is, is crucial to that as well, that everything's interconnected through the physical world as well, in addition to the information world. Um, and I also like what you said about decoupling. When we think about these multipolar traps, it's decoupling yourself from kind of the collective um, and the commons, and then it's also decoupling your short-term goals from your long-term goals. And, and so that's where the issues become. Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked. Computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. KeePee is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at Shapeshift, KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pin protected, which provides protection if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your KeepKey is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line? You'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit KeepKey.com to order yours today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. So I guess to check on one thing here though, I think, and, and from maybe from like a a little bit from an effective altruist perspective is, is when we think about these kind of, I agree that if we don't solve multipolar traps um, and these generator functions of X-Risk, then we will self terminate. I fully agree with that. But the question is, at what timeline? And so you can imagine a world where um, we're trying to solve these kind of we're at this super abstract kind of meta level and trying to solve these kind of generator functions of x risk. While oops, one of the x risks actually killed us, you know, you can also imagine vice versa, where we only solve one of the x risks, but then the generator functions kill us. So how do you think about kind of the cost of delay there in terms of like, what stuff we should focus on at which time?
0: If you are focusing on winning at the game that is killing everything, then you are asleep or insane.
1: <laughs> I I kind of agree, but I but wait, wait, let me pause. Let me let me let me push back on that for a second. You can imagine a world in which let's say you and I had the ability to solve an existential risk. Let's say we could press a button and climate change went away or whatever. That'd be sweet. Um, or we could concentrate on solving the generator functions of X-Risk. I could see some versions and work on that for like a longer time or whatever. I could see a version of reality where we where certain people try to solve the 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 X-Risk itself rather than the kind of meta-level generator functions. Do
0: you know what yeah. I'm saying? We have to be focused on the generator functions, because otherwise not only if we try and solve for a specific X-risk that is a result of the underlying system architectures and dynamics that made that risk and lots of risks like it, not only do we not solve the other cases, but there is a decent chance that, as we've mentioned about goals before, we actually solve it in a way that makes something else more likely. <laughs> and this is why, so when I said, if we are trying to win at the game that is killing everything, basically win at rival risk games and we're a sleeper insane, being, we just either don't understand the phenomenon or they're, or is something else wrong? uh, Then what we also realize is that trying to just keep addressing the symptoms without addressing what's causing them doesn't make any sense either. And so then we have to say, okay, well, at minimum, I want to focus on if I don't know how to solve the underlying generator functions, I at least want to make sure that the actions that I'm doing to the degree that they are successful create precedents where if more people do them, the system at least moves in the right direction. It's a race to the top rather than the race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. I at least want to make sure I'm doing that. Meaning I'm creating dynamics where my ability to win is through better partnership rather than better rivalry, rather than the example where I figure out that if I get the, uh, you know, if I figure out how to Factory ties farms, I can produce more meat per dollar and have higher margins on my meat, moving towards ubiquitous factory farming that is just r- ruinous for everything. That's been a multipolar trap race to the bottom. The kind of free range or organic movement that is saying, no, people will actually pay more for the thing that is healthier and better for them, that also happens to be better for the world and less ethically terrible. Let's do something where, to the degree we succeed at this and other people follow, the system dynamics are better, that doesn't categorically solve for the issue of multipolar trap, but it at least says within the kinds of systems we understand like capitalism, we're gonna move system dynamics in the right direction. So one of the things people wanna really focus on is, is the source of differential value that they're able to provide within any project, within capitalism, something that to the degree that it's successful and other people try to replicate, it creates system dynamics that move in the right direction versus the wrong direction. That's at least one way that people can think about within the current systems how to be in the right direction. And, of course, some people will be focused on how do we actually solve the underlying generator functions. And we spoke about the generator function from one perspective, which is that rivalrous dynamics cause harm and that exponential rivalry causing exponential harm self-terminates. Yep. There is another way of speaking about the generator function that is even more fundamental and abstract, and I think it would be worth sharing that if because it speaks to what we have to change. If you're
1: yeah, interested. let's yeah. So and actually, I was about to go there because I tra- we're essentially we're we operating at the level of what I would call meta X risk, the generator functions of X risk. We pushed down for a bit there to the actual s X risks themselves, and now let's go actually one level of abstraction further up. So so tell me, yeah, what is the thing that is actually one level above these generator functions of X risk?
0: Yeah. So the one generator function we've talked about, rivalrous dynamics, we got that. I want to give one other example of a generator function and then we'll go to an even more abstract unifying framework. So when you mentioned, hey, let's say we solve climate change, is that adequate and is it even an appropriate thing to do? So, So let's take an example where we're not focused on like increasing... Uh, war through exponential tech, weaponization, or whatever, but we're focused on simply environmental um, collapse dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, when we look at environmental damage dynamics, all the environmental damage that we look at can be thought of in terms of either depletion of unrenewable resources or accumulation of waste streams that aren't being processed in real time. And so Accumulation and depletion, when we start to look at the examples, so I say, okay, accumulation, right, what we call toxicity, whether I'm talking about nitrogen runoff causing dead zones or the plastic in the ocean or mercury in the water or in the air or uranium or carbon dioxide uh, causing carbonic acid and ocean acidification or carbon dioxide in the air or um, any of those, right, the the CFCs or HFCs that were the ozone hole problem. Those are all special case examples of some kind of accumulation of something that doesn't have a feedback loop that can process it in real time that has some externalized cost on the, the anti-fragility of the ecosystem writ large. If I try and focus on one of them and say, hey, I'm just going to sequester a bunch of CO2, but I'm not stopping the nitrogen runoff or the you know any of those other ones, the biodiversity loss or whatever – then what we'll find is I move the curve a tiny bit, but I haven't addressed the fact that there are many, many different metrics that are all moving to collapse from the same underlying dynamic. Similarly, on the other side of depletion, whether I'm talking about cutting down the old-growth forests or overfishing the ocean or species extinction or biodiversity loss or peak nitrogen or peak phosphorus or um, any of those things, those are all examples similarly of unrenewable uh, resource utilization and an exponential curve on how that is happening so then we say let's put those both together and we look at that in a natural ecosystem like a forest there is no unrenewable use of resource and there is no accumulated waste every new thing is made from old things all the old things get turned into new things so you have comprehensive loop closure all the atoms are in closed loop atomic cycling so that the atoms from one thing when it dies become new things at the same speed that things are dying at um, or turning to waste. The anti-fragility of nature is a function of a few things, but primarily for this example, a function of closed loop dynamics. The fragility of the human built world is largely a function of open loop dynamics. So when we look at depletion on one side and accumulation on the other, those are the two sides of a linear atomic economy or materials resource uh, economy, that we can say the underlying dynamic of linear flows rather than closed loop cycles or open loops in a network diagram is the way we define toxicity writ large, then we need to work on the generator function, not of just this one specific accumulation or depletion issue, but how do we have a process by which comprehensive loop closure is built into the choice making processes of all humans everywhere? Yep, yep, And as soon as we start thinking about it that way, not just like how could we do it somewhere, but how do we create a different type of behavioral dynamics from incentive structures to collective intelligence structures, so basically the sense-making and choice-making dynamics that lead to all agents thinking about and working towards comprehensive loop closure, that is now at a meta level to all of the specific instantiations. So now we go one level deeper and we say we talked about Rival risk dynamics multiplied by exponential tech self terminates. We also talked about linear flows, open loop flows on a uh, finite planet also ends up leading to collapse dynamic. There is something that unifies both of those, so mm-hmm. we can say it's a meta meta x risk. Yep, and we noticed that both of these involve specifically human in cho- human choice empowered by technology in relationship with. Uh, some kind of world or commons, right? And so if I look at rival risk dynamics, if there wasn't exponential tech, if we stayed with stone tools, we wouldn't really have any risk of self-induced extinction. We would just keep killing each other, but we wouldn't kill everybody. We couldn't have a war that killed everybody and we wouldn't be able to cut down all the treats, right? And so specifically it requires not just tech, but, uh, Ever growing tech, right? Tech feedback curves. Yep. And similarly, if our tools were limited to a size where, like, say, we had just fishing lines, not mile long drift nets, we wouldn't fish all the fucking fish out of the ocean. Um, but as soon as we've got mile long drift nets and we've got D9s taking down forests and slash and burn, whatever else then again, we start to see these fragility dynamics get larger than the playing field can handle because you've got movements that are faster than the anti-fragility can process. Now we say, why is that? And here's the key insight for all the people that are thinking about how can we use technology to make the world better and use technology in a fundamentally evolutionary way. And the fact that people might say, well, look, nature's rivalrous. And so we take market dynamics as kind of an example of a social Darwinism of looking at how nature works and applying it to ourselves. And am I talking about something that sounds like it is not how nature works? Well, kind of yes and no. And, but there's, this is really, really critical because this is one place where people think they're thinking through formal systems, but they're the wrong formal systems in nature. Pre, humans, let's say, pre-homo habilis in the development of um, evolving technology or developing technology, we see micro rivalry, meaning this lion and this gazelle, obviously, in the moment of the chase, have a rivalrous relationship with each other. The lion wants what the gazelle doesn't want, the gazelle wants what the lion doesn't want, and they're kind of mutually exclusive. Um, so cool. We we have a rivalrous dynamic there at a micro level. And yet gazelles as a whole species and lions as a whole species depend upon each other. And if, they, uh, if either one died, the other one would probably go extinct. And so then we say, how is it that in nature, micro local rivalry leads to macro symbiosis and interdependence? And is it the same in humans or not? Because obviously social – Darwinism and laissez-faire capitalism says yes it is the same we compete and the best happens and we innovate and those who produce the best goods and services and the best values who proliferates and have the most money because money is a concentrated form of choice making but they they did the good things with choice so they should have more choice making like that's the idea right and it is gibberish and it's important to understand really critically why it's gibberish as soon as we developed technology And I'm going to define what I mean by this very specifically in a moment. We change the fundamental system dynamics and the same system dynamics do not and cannot apply. So let's go to a chimpanzee who obviously uses tools or a bird with a nest or a beaver or whatever, right? Like they are tool users. If I give a chimpanzee or if a chimpanzee just finds on its own a rock and it wants to cut some vine and it just starts rubbing the rock across the vine, it experientially notices how good this particular rock is at cutting. It has a uh, eminent experience of that. If it picks up another rock and they experience it cutting faster, they will use the sharper rock. If you give them a knife, they will experience it cutting faster and they will use the knife, but they have never invented knives. And there's a reason is that Our current standard narrative said this started with Homo habilis, this kind of tool-evolving capacity rather than just tool-using capacity. Um, So let's take that. So it requires the capacity for abstraction, which developed along with prefrontal cortex, etc., to be able to use this rock and feel the sharpness and this rock and feel the sharpness, this rock and feel the sharpness and understand something that is none of the rocks, which is the abstract principle of sharpness. What makes something sharp and how could I make something that is more sharp? Now I'm not focused on the instance of any of the rocks, but a principle that they all have in common, but that is none of them. That abstraction capacity seems to have emerged with some earlier hominid and then have zenith in uh, homo sapiens. And that allows us to say, well, I would try chipping it with a and to make an arrowhead and then i would make a knife and then i would make a laser right i can keep doubling down on the abstract principle of sharpness so i get evolving tech and this is why beavers are kind of doing the same thing they were doing a long time ago Um, with regard to tools it was part of an evolved dynamic and we are changing our entire uh environment one generation to the next so radically now why does this matter evolution And I know this is a bit of a long one, but this is because this is actually the heart of the whole fucking thing. So thank you for indulging me. (laughs) (laughs) Evolution is a kind of creative process, meaning it is a process by which new stuff comes to exist that didn't exist before. And when we think about what the process of evolution is, we have some kind of mutation and some kind of selection dynamics, right? So there is a distribution of things that are pretty similar, but a little bit different. And then the ones that are a little bit different in a slightly more adaptive way in the moment, meaning can either survive or mate better, um, end up having a better chance of making it through. Whatever characteristics led to doing that get doubled down on, et cetera, right? So what we find is that that process happens extraordinarily slowly not by design. It's an unconscious process, right? There's an unconscious process of mutation and an unconscious process of selection. Nobody is saying this one seems like a more true, good, and beautiful approach. Let's go with it. This seems like a good future into perpetuity. It's just these guys actually got food better or made it better. And that's what gets selected for, which can include selecting for things that move in the direction of increasing violence, dominance, capacity, whatever. But at least in nature, one of the things that happens is that The rivalrous dynamics where power is used in a rivalrous way in a micro context, there is a coupling of, there's a symmetrical coupling of the rates of power change. So as a lion, as lions are evolving to get, to be better hunters over the course of hundreds or thousands of generations, gazelles are also evolving to get faster because the gazelles that make it through are better at getting away from lions and the lions that make it through are better at getting gazelles, right? And so they're and their reproduction times are similar enough and they, their system dynamics they're embedded in are related. So you don't get asymmetries of power. You actually have a radical binding of power symmetry from lion to lion and from gazelle to gazelle and from lion to gazelle and from gazelle to plant and the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this is key. This is actually the essential criteria that makes micro rivalry lead to macro symbiosis is the symmetrical power binding. Imagine for a moment that I could make a mutation where lions got a hundred times better at killing in one generation. Well, in that one generation, they would kill all the gazelles. They'd eat them all and then they would go extinct. And so what we would find is that those species that were so much more um, effective in their environment, could actually navigate and have create resilience to would self-terminate because of their own effectiveness, independent upon of the ecological niche they depend upon. They would be debasing the substrate upon which they depend yeah. through their over overexpression, and we see this. A virus happens; virus comes about that is so lethal that it kills the host before it gets to um, actually propagate. And then less virulent versions of that virus get to propagate more. And nature actually ends up selecting for a virus that's moving more in the direction of symbiosis than just lethality, right? Yes. And so evolution itself has this symmetrical power binding. Why this is so fucking critical to understand is because nature does not select for individuals of a species and it doesn't even select for species. It seems to over the very short term, but as you zoom out, Over the long term, it selects for self-stabilizing ecological niches, Mm -hmm. where the particular members of a species that seem like they're getting selected for over the short term, that are super lethal over the long term, self-terminate. And so the things that make it through long term are these radically anti-fragile symbiotic systems. And... So we say, so. Okay, we get that in nature, and we we look at the most badass apex predators in nature. Whether we're looking at a lion or a shark or whatever, and we look at a lion killing a gazelle compared to what a human factory farm of cows looks like, yep. right? And we look at a shark eating a tuna compared to a mile long drift net. If a mile long, like if fucking great whites got mile long drift nets, the whole ocean would have not existed a long time ago. And so as soon as we developed technology and the ability to double down on technology, we broke the power symmetry. And we have to think about two applications, humans with regard to other humans and humans with regard to the rest of nature that they depend upon. So humans with regard to other humans, the most powerful lion is not that much most powerful than the more powerful than the next most powerful lion. And it's not even that much more powerful than the average lion or even one of the weaker lions. If you think about it, like the most powerful lion is maybe 1.1 or 1.2x more powerful than the, the upper-and-coming lion, who will overtake him soon. Now look at human power distributions and say, how much more destructive power does a Putin or a Trump have than you do?
1: A lot. A lot. <laughs> and, magazine?
0: Yeah. Like – the ability to destroy the whole planet versus the ability to like maybe hit somebody, right? <laughs> and maybe you can get a gun, right? And you look at it, you're – okay, I don't know. Is that nine? Is that 12 orders of magnitude? It's a lot. Okay, well, that's a huge fucking power asymmetry. Now, humans with regard to nature, we can cut down the forest much, much, much faster than forests forest can replenish. We can – um, use up resources faster than they can replenish. We can create toxicity faster than they can replenish, et cetera. As a result, that's why the open loop dynamics matter so much is because nature cannot actually process the speed of transitions that we are making, right? And because we are increasing our predatory capacity faster than the environment can evolve because de- technology is a second creative process. What we would call design is not – design is a consciously mediated, abstraction-oriented process. Evolution is an unconsciously mediated, non-abstract, eminent kind of process. Evolution leads to radical interdependent complexities. Technology allows the selection over the short term of something that has independent of its relationship with the rest of the whole. And so if we... as soon as we get that those are mathematically fundamentally different design gives us complicated systems that are all fragile. You notice everything that humans build, the house that I'm in can't repair itself the way that a that a forest would, if a fire took it, the computer I'm on doesn't repair itself in the way my body does. So design gives us a finite number of parameters that we can then externally build something for, right? Complicated systems, but very, very powerful complexity, anti-fragility happens by self-organization. We don't really know how to do that, but we do know how to debase it. We know how to have the complicated debase the complex substrate upon which it depends. That's how we get increasing fragility until we have collapse. So why this matters is technology itself is a fundamentally new creative process in the history of local universe. It breaks the power symmetry and as a result, it makes micro-rivalry turn into macro-rivalry rather than micro-rivalry turn into macro-symbiosis. As a result, rather than get increasing anti-fragility, we get increasing fragility towards inevitable collapse dynamics. And so what that means is the relationship between the creative process called technology, creating complicated systems, and the relationship between the evolutionary creative process creating complex systems the relationship between those is the thing that we actually have to change and modulate because we still have rivalrous basis for choice humans choosing against each other in a rivalrous way that came from evolution but now extended through design technology complicated systems the our understanding of causal principles optimization in a way where the rivalrous dynamics are no longer checked in a way that creates any balance. So what we actually need is a new creative process, a new process by which new stuff comes into existence that is neither evolution nor design. It is a third thing. We're not designing parts to, we're not designing individual pieces of technology that empower rivalrous choice-making basis. We are, and we're not waiting for uh, anti-rivalry at a macro level through evolutionary process we are actually designing self-stabilizing complex ecological niches and designing in the relationship between the complicated and the complex to be itself metastable. That what we would call evolution by design or you know sometimes referred to as transcendental design is a actual different, mathematical process of new stuff coming into being than either evolution or design is. And we can see that at the heart of it, design is all about the understanding of causation. We can understand the law. We can understand how a causal dynamic works. We can make a tool that allows us to manipulate that law. Right. So science is the understanding of causation and then technology is the application of it to have more effective causation, to be able to cause stuff at larger scale. But our basis for choice – science doesn't give us a good basis for choice because it's first person and science studies third person, which is why it said we say what is, not what ought. Our basis for choice is still coming from social Darwinism, still coming from a rivalrous evolutionary basis. Those two together is an unstable system heading towards collapse. We actually need then a theory of choice beyond game theory, beyond social Darwinism that can – be an adequate container for our causal dynamics and to be able to actually hold the relationship between choice and causation appropriate to have metastability. That is, if you want to talk about the macro level of the generator functions of X-Risk, it is the relationship between choice and causation within the field of change and the necessity for a theory of and systems of right choice making at the level of individuals and collectives that can steward the level of causal power that we have through technology in ways that will create systems that are actually anti-fragile and metastate.
1: Boom. I like it. Thank you for the conclusion there. And just for the listeners and we're just going to be, I'm just going to wrap up and then we'll kind of transition to, uh, to, to, to full wrap up mode. But as you said there, first we have, we've already been talking about the, ge- the generator functions of X- XRS or one of them as the, um, and uh, rivalrous um, games with distributed exponential technology with interconnectedness leads to self-termination. And you can think about the loop closures as another part of this where you have, from a stock and flow perspective, you have uh, depletion or accumulation of various things and when those go to zero or when those go to infinity, that's also really bad for us. So those two things are generator functions of X-Risk. But in fact, as you're saying here, there's one kind of one meta level above that, which is to say that both of those things are the result of um, this new kind of process, this new technological process and that process is different than the evolutionary process and evolutionary process as you said is really good at taking if you think from a multi-scale perspective it's really good at taking the micro rivalry and trans you know, transforming it into macro, um, you know, symbiosis or anti fragility. Um, but technology does not do that. Technology does not have that micro to macro kind of thing. And so what we need to do is kind of think about the relationship between these two processes. We've created a new process, AKA technology, and we've had this old process, AKA evolution. We have to think about what is the relationship between those things and how can we make a third kind of process that, is, as you say, is something kind of a combination of them that allows us to kind of do the self designed bottom-up, uh, anti-fragile uh, creation. Um, so with that, Daniel, I know we're out of time here. Um, and just for our listeners to, as a quick note, um, A, you can go check out some of Daniel's work at uh, civilizationemerging.com. Um and I'd recommend that because lots of the ideas here are, are there. The other thing to note is that likely this will not be the last podcast between um, Daniel and I because uh, you know he left it at, at a very juicy edge there, which is what is the uh, if we have science as a, our, our, our theory of kind of um, of truth or whatever in the world, what is our theory of ethics in the world? What is our process for that? We need to dive into that. We need to dive into how this relates to our current um, information revolution. How this relates to black swans and the precautionary principle and progress, and also what you as a person can do about all of this um so well there'll be another one likely but daniel is there anything else um that you would like to say to our listeners either a place that they can find you on the interwebs or or any last thought
0: uh, that was a very concise and valuable wrap-up i appreciate it and um yeah i'm very happy to come back and take the next step because um as, as you said we we shared some frameworks without actually sharing the rest of the frameworks necessary to understand it or how to um, act with those frameworks. So I'm happy to come back and do that. Uh, you already shared my blog. So if these topics are interesting to people, I look forward to hearing questions thoughts that come up.